Welcome to Catholic Economics. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and today I'm going to be talking about healthcare and cooperatives. So I got a request from a listener a while back to do an episode on healthcare and cooperatives. And I've talked about cooperatives uh, several times on the show. I think I've done at least one episode uh, dedicated directly to cooperatives. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. I've... I've uh, I've studied cooperatives as um, as an economist. Uh, I did my dissertation on uh, cooperative finance and stuff like that. And I'm I'm more familiar with the cooperatives that um, that, that operate um, as collections of of assets um, uh, owned by member businesses, essentially, or member member owners. Uh, not really employee. Uh, employee-owned cooperatives. I'm not as familiar with those, um, but I've talked about Ace Hardware. Um, Ace Hardware is a is a cooperative. Um, most of the uh, agricultural producers um, in the U.S. that are uh, uh, that operate in row crops and and in, and in several fruit crops and vegetable crops um, are members of cooperatives, and those cooperatives provide um, processing uh, capacity. Uh, for them. And so um, I, I'm a big fan of cooperatives. I think they're a very smart way to scale. Um, and in, in the sense in which they are smart um, and, and they do well at scale is that they, they allow a lot of small smallholder type businesses to uh, pool their assets together and accomplish something at, at scale that would be very difficult for any one individual member. And the big advantage of a co-op um, is because, of course, you know, this whatever this process is, right? So um, just to give an example for all of this, um, let's say you and I are uh, plum farmers in California, and um, we, we and all of our buddy plum farmers from around the area, um, we all pool our capital together. We pool our financial assets together and we purchase um, uh, some equipment and we hire a management team. We hire uh, who, who then hire some laborers um, to do the processing. And maybe they're, uh, I don't know, they're cleaning them and they're packaging them. Maybe they provide some kind of harvest service or something like that. Um, you know, but, but all this, you know, very, very, very expensive equipment um, that, that would do all of this stuff. We, uh, we own this uh, uh, processing facility. And of course, um, a, a private company, a, a corporation could own those same assets and provide those same services to us um, under some type of contract uh, or something like that. But if we, you and I, and all of our plum farming buddies uh, are pooling uh, our own financial assets together and we are maintaining control of uh, those processing assets, then we have an advantage uh, uh, in the sense that we have control. Um, and when the 
uh, when when there are uh, you know uh, adverse market conditions and things like that uh, potentially you know to some extent um, because we're capturing a, a, a margins across the supply chain um, maybe that shields us from some losses to an extent um, and again the control aspect is is huge uh, we have control over those processing assets instead of um, you know, always being worried that some, you know, that this other corporation is going to uh, just decide that they want the terms to be different or something like that. And in co-op theory, um, we, we read a lot about um, this idea of a competitive yardstick. So um, even, you know, let's say all of the plum farmers across the entire country, uh, maybe there are a lot of them, I don't know, um, suppose that um, only uh, uh, maybe a third of us or maybe half of us um, do our processing through co-ops uh, versus uh, the other um, the other half of our plum farming buddies. Uh, they do their processing through uh, corporations. Well, this idea of a competitive yardstick tells us, well, hey, you know, it's kind of nice that um, we have this co-op because what that tells our, our, uh, our, our fellow plum farmers who are operating with a corporation is that, hey, we, you know, we can tell you what our terms are or what, you know, what kind of a cost breakdown we have uh, in our own processing. And so uh, that kind of gives those other plum farmers uh, kind of a credible threat to that corporation that's that's doing their processing. Hey, anytime we want, you know, we can just go over to those other guys and join the co-op. So you better keep your prices reasonable. You better, uh, you know, give us good terms and, and stuff like that. So um, I think I think this is a reasonable theory. I think it's a, a, a decent way of looking at what a co-op can do uh, in this sort of business context. Um, so that's one piece uh, is this control, kind of sort of an introduction to co-ops. The other thing I want to talk about, uh, just to, to lay the foundation here, is this idea of um, a federated cooperative. So if you've ever been to a Cenex gas station, um, that is owned by, uh, the, that, that gas station is part of a very large federated cooperative called Cenex Harvest States. And uh, that co-op is made up of cooperatives that are then owned by individual farmers. Um, and the thing is that, so uh, uh, if, if, I'm a, if I'm a wheat farmer in Kansas and I own a share of my cooperative that does uh, the drying and um, the, handles the marketing of my wheat, um, you know, I, I, I'm participating in some scale there, right? I have, you know, these facilities for drying or uh, um, you know, preservation of the grain, uh, uh, marketing of the grain. Maybe I get some advantages there. Um, but then my cooperative might own a share in Cenex Harvest States. And Cenex Harvest States gets into a whole bunch of other things. So they might get into retail processing. Uh, they might get into, um, well, they are involved in things like oil, um, and gasoline stuff like that um, and so they're in you know things that are you know we would think of as sort of even bigger scale than you know that 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 processor co-op um, that's local to the farmer um, and you also see this with um, rural electricity 
So if you live in a city, you probably have a corporation uh, that handles your electricity, and it's probably uh, kind of regulated by the state um, that you live in. There are other uh, arrangements, and Texas is really strange. Uh, uh, so maybe I'll talk about Texas one of these times, uh, about their electricity situation. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, but if you live near a city, you probably have that uh, arrangement where it's just a regulated corporation. But in rural areas where you have uh, a lot more, your population spread out a lot more. Um, you, you also have this situation of, of sort of a local co-op that deals with the um, distribution of power. And you have, a, in a sense, a federated co-op or a contracted co-op um, that might handle transmission um, or help with the engineering of transmission lines and stuff like that. Um, so just these are examples, okay? And, and what I'm trying to get across to you is that cooperatives operate in a number of sectors, okay? They're, they're a, a large part of agriculture. They operate in the retail world in some ways. Uh, grocery stores, like I said, True Value is a what we call a, a supply cooperative. Um, you know, these little mom-and-pop stores or mom-and-pop businesses own shares of uh, true value and then true value um, essentially allows all of these mom and pop shops to come together to buy their um, their inventory and so they get a better price or you know at least that's the theory um, uh, power generation oil and gas uh, all sorts of things um, that cooperatives get into so from my point of view, there's no reason to think that cooperatives cannot operate uh, in the medical world as well. And where I think this is very advantageous is the, the idea that since the last time we had what I would consider to be a reasonable healthcare model uh, that was consistent with subsidiarity and... Um, at least gave you a shot at having, um, you know, some some push towards the common good was uh, before the mid 1940s and really uh, for sure before the 1960s um, when we had uh, mutual aid organizations that handled medical care. I'm not sure if I have an episode on this, but check out the book from mutual aid to the welfare state uh, from mutual aid to the welfare state. Uh, on Amazon, it's a little pricey, but if you get it as an ebook or whatever, it's it's a little cheaper. Um, it's a fantastic book that kind of details the history of uh, mutual aid organizations in the United States, and it talks a lot about their ability to provide medical services. And um, just as a highlight, uh, at the time, uh, maybe the 1920s or 30s, a man who was working in a factory or something like that could, with three or four days' wages could provide medical care for his family uh, with just for an entire year with just three or four days of wages. So three or four days of wages spread out over a whole year. Um, he was getting everything all the way up to like sort of minor surgery, and it was provided through these mutual aid organizations. And then essentially what happened was uh, the state boards of health or state health boards and the um, the hospitals uh, uh, or, or those controlling hospitals, the, the state, uh, the state regulators and stuff like that, they, uh, were able to sort of push out mutual aid and, um, uh, like, you know, health insurance is also, uh, you know, that kind of messed it all up too. Uh, so anyway, um, the, 
from my point of view now, what we're seeing is uh, we're seeing states uh, allowing um, these direct primary care physician, uh, you know, they're allowing this model to proliferate. And I've been a member with a direct primary care for about a year now. And I've been really happy with it. So what you do is you have some kind of high deductible cost share health insurance plan that's that's actually insurance, right? That's actually <laughs> you pay a premium and then you get a big benefit. Um, they pay a large portion of, uh, and of course, SPN network and all that garbage. But um, they pay a large portion of the uh, uh, the care that you would have in a hospital setting or an emergency room setting or something like that, but they don't cover everything. They don't cover, uh, you know, uh, little Johnny has a toothache or, um, uh, you know, somebody who's got, um, bronchitis, right. They don't, they don't deal with that. Um, and so what you do is you have this side deductible plan and then you have your direct primary care physician and, um, you know, these direct primary care physicians are great because they, from, from the perspective of the doctor, they have a very small patient load, relatively speaking, um, and yet uh, they essentially operate on like a monthly fee basis. So I just pay um, basically a family plan. I have five in my family here. Uh, so I, I pay a lot more than somebody who's just all on their own, right? Um, but uh, but, but uh, it's reasonable. And regardless of whether I show up there and need help or not need anything, uh, she can dispense medication, uh, in my state. And I think 30 some States in the U S if you have uh, a, a license to practice medicine, you can also dispense medication. Um, she does shots and stuff like that. You know, the basic stuff. Um, and she tries to help us get discounts if we need x-rays and stuff like that. So it's not perfect, but, um, what it, what's really nice about it is it kind of gets rid of the, you know, uh, uh, sitting the sit in the waiting room for four hours waiting on them to you know take you in and uh, and and the doctor doesn't have to employ you know ten people to shuffle paperwork around for the insurance companies um, and so you can see where in some states you know this isn't available because uh, because the 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 incumbents the incumbent uh, uh, physicians and medical apparatus in the states may not like that. Uh, so I've had very good luck with this. And, and in my vision here is that you, you, that, that my direct primary care physician is sort of like the farmer in the, in the California plum example. Okay. And so she owns her own little practice and there's another one in town and there's a few more maybe in, in a, in a decent sized city. Um, and, and within a region you have, um, uh, or maybe if we're talking about like a large city, uh, maybe, a, a, you know, three or four groups of these physicians in, in, a, in a fairly large city um, would have uh, then a sort of membership uh, and, and ownership of a cooperative that would provide the hospital bit of all of this. And so not so much that uh, physicians really need to scale, but certainly if you need specialists, right? So my doctor, uh, you know, I'm, I'm her patient. Um, and you know, I've got a really bad earache and something's wrong or I've got vertigo, right? So she's going to send me to a specialist, right? And maybe what, what, what it would be is that her and the other direct primary care physicians would sort of band together and they, uh, uh, and again, pooling, pooling financial resources, um, hiring management, to, to take care of this hospital, 
but I think it would it would it would lower the administrative costs of hospital. I think administrative costs in hospitals are ridiculous, um, and it would lower that to an extent. I think because uh, you would sort of uh, align the incentives. Right, we're 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 kind of getting rid of administrative waste, um, and we would have. Um, potentially better care because you wouldn't have to worry so much about what the stupid insurance company thinks should be done. Um, and it wouldn't be so much about just, uh, uh, doing whatever the insurance company says, which I think is, is a big part of, um, all of medicine. Uh, and potentially, you know, some of these other things don't necessarily fit in, right? Uh, you know, does surgery count as one of these uh, sorts of things that the doctors might want to provide? I, I don't know. But, um, you know, at the very least, uh, they could sort of see that as uh, a, a business opportunity, right? Where where the, the, the hospital that these direct primary care physicians are uh, financing, um, that that hospital is then uh, a, a prime time, a prime f- uh, opportunity to own um, not only equipment for scans and, and imaging, but um, also surgical and uh, uh, emergency medical care. And even if those things aren't necessarily tied in, uh, and really hospitals become something more like uh, uh, just a place where you have the specialists and the imaging uh, and all that sort of thing, uh, the reality is that you can do surgery and emergency care separately. Um, if you're from a city, you may not see this kind of thing, but in rural areas, we have sort of emergency service clinics um, dotted all over the place. Um, and, you know, they have their own ambulances and they, they operate uh, just as an emergency facility. Um, and surgery, uh, you know, one of the other uh, organizations that I'm a huge fan of is the Surgery Center, Surgery Center of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. And essentially what they do is they do not take any form of insurance whatsoever, and they operate uh, just on a cash model. Uh, they operate kind of like the direct primary care physician does. They, um, they have their prices on their website. If you look up Surgery Center of Oklahoma, you look up the price, boom, you kind of have a, you know, something done with your MCL or whatever. Bada bing, here's the money. It costs this many thousand dollars, and that includes the anesthesia, and you're done. So, uh, you know, okay, yeah, is that expensive? Sure, yeah, it's not cheap. But, um, you know, I think uh, to an extent we, we, you know, we need to talk about health insurance reform in a different, a different context. But there's nothing saying that a, uh, uh, one of these high-deductible plans couldn't uh, do some kind of a reimbursement-style uh, thing for, the, for that, that kind of care. Um, so of course it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't fix everything, but I think, uh, this would be potentially, uh, a step in the right direction. So thanks for listening. If, if you, if you have uh, comments about any of this stuff, I'd, I'd love to see them, uh, send me an email, got all my contact information, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, uh, is in the description. And, uh, if you'd like to contribute to the show, um, I have links for Patreon and Subscribestar as well. Uh, but I really appreciate you listening. I appreciate you sharing the show. Um, the biggest thing to me is just uh, I get to spend a little bit of time in my day uh, or a little bit of time out of my week uh, talking about uh, cool policy stuff that uh, or economics that I think is interesting. And I'm just, I'm just absolutely thrilled that there are people uh, who care about this stuff and want to hear about it and want to interact uh, and, 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 Help me understand things better, too. So thanks for listening. Thank you.